It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am very excited right now to be joined by Ari Berman. He is the person who writes the most about voter suppression and voting rights. He is also the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. You can find his writing at Mother Jones, but you can listen to him here right now. Ari Berman is going to break down the hundreds of of voter suppression bills being introduced across the country right now. Ari Berman, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hey, Jess. Great to hear your voice again. Thank you. It's nice to talk to you. It has been forever, and I feel like I only I only get to talk to you when, like, democracy is really under attack. <laughs> <laughs> we, seem, we seem to very much be in one of those moments right now. So I've been saying uh, for, like, a month now, 253 voter suppression bills have been introduced in this country. And I say that, and people are shocked to hear that, and it is a shocking thing to say. And then I, I checked your Twitter feed yesterday, and uh, we're up to 361 now? What is happening? Yeah, we are up to 361 new restrictions on voting rights introduced in the first three months of this year. And that's a pretty staggering number, and it's gone up significantly. As you mentioned, there were 253 new voting restrictions introduced as of February 19th. And so the number of new voting restrictions has increased 43% in just a month. And more is still coming. I don't think I could so, think of 361 ways to suppress the vote. Like, what, well, the what kinds of things Party are we looking at? <laughs> I can guarantee you that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when when I, voter suppression becomes the central organizing principle of your party, you can think of it in a lot of yeah. different ways. When everyone in the party, from the former president down to the local county Republican chairman, is aligned that they, they want to use their power so that they can steal the next election because they couldn't steal the, the last one, you come up with some very creative things to do. Uh, and that's what we're seeing all across the country. We're seeing like things that are getting a lot of attention, right? Like in Georgia, not giving people food and water right. Right away to vote. That's getting the headlines. But like things that aren't getting the headlines is they can basically just take over election machinery and not certify elections if they don't yeah, want that's, to. And th that's so, like, the piece it, I wanted it, to ask you to unpack a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Like it's the little things in a lot of ways that are going to have the biggest impact. Yeah. I mean, the, well, the water thing is just such a like, what is wrong with you as a human? Like, that's that's the one that just sort of makes like the mom at like, I don't have kids. And that one makes me a mom. It's like, who raised you? Like, why? what do you mean you can't bring old women water if they're in a long line? Like, what is what is wrong? So so that 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 does that this the state is allowed to take over election machinery in a county that they think isn't doing it right. That's a little more nebulous. It doesn't it doesn't trigger that reflex in me where I'm like, what's wrong with you? Um, instead, I wonder, what does that mean? So let me ask you, what does it mean if Georgia can take over election machinery? And like, what would it have meant if they had had that power in 2020? Well, I mean, it opens the door to them being able to do a lot of the things Trump wanted them to do that they couldn't do in 2020. So first off, the GOP legislature will now have a majority of appointees on the 
state board of election, which is in charge of overseeing the voting laws in the state. And the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, who stood up to Trump, has been stripped as both chairman and voting member of the board of election. So that's in and of itself very disturbing. I mean, Raffensperger is a conservative Republican, but he does have some integrity. He's also elected statewide, meaning that he is accountable to all the voters in the state, whereas the Republican legislature is extremely gerrymandered. They're only accountable to voters in their districts, which are overwhelmingly right. white, white, rural, and conservative. So they are not accountable to voters statewide. So number one, that, that they have that power. Then the state board of election is empowered to take over underperforming county boards of elections, up to four of them. And that is a very big power they have, because, for example, they could take over election operations in Atlanta's Fulton County, which is the largest Mm -hmm. and one of the most Democratic counties uh, in the state, uh, also a place where 60 percent of people are non-white. It has been a target of Republicans for a long time. This is the county, remember, where Rudy Giuliani said that there were suitcases of ballots that were counted when when GOP poll watchers had left, which was completely untrue. But just imagine if the GOP-controlled legislature takes over the state board of election and the state board of election takes over election operations in Atlanta, Fulton County. I mean, they can do this under the law. This is not a conspiracy theory. They literally have the power to do this. And so... I don't know what they will do with it, but it opens up the power for them to really control elections in a way that they did not have control in the past and also potentially not certify the results, uh, potentially hear lots of challenges to results and kicking voters off the rolls. And so I think you can imagine if there's a close election like there was in 2020, they're going to have a lot more avenues to try to intensify control and potentially undermine the will of the voters in 2022 or 2024. I'm regularly floored by the dystopian nature of Georgia voting laws. I remember Stacey Abrams explaining to me once that you have to register to vote by a certain day before the election in Georgia, but that the the government of Georgia does not have uh, any any legal requirement to put that registration into the rolls in time for you to vote on election day. Like they just don't have to legally. They're just they just don't have to. Um, that struck me as as like nonsense, and so does this. Um, my question is: I'm assuming that that the the 361 bills that are being introduced in in states other than Georgia are are similar in their in their dystopian nature, and also some of them will pass because we don't control as many legislatures as as we should. Um, what does the John Lewis Voting Rights Act? What does HR one uh, SB one, what will that do to, f- does that do anything to rectify the measures that are currently going through the, the, that are currently trying to suppress the vote? Will that help? Yes, absolutely. Um, the for the people act and the John Lewis voting rights advancement act would go a long way to stopping these voter suppression measures. Um, HR one would stop them, uh, by putting in place all of these national policies to make it easier to vote. So it would say that you have to have Automatic registration, election day registration, two weeks of early voting, expanded mail voting, things like that, that there would have to be limits on a discriminatory voter ID laws or voter purging. So that would go a long way to stopping what we're seeing. And then the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would be even more targeted because it would require those states with long history of discrimination, like Georgia, to once again have to approve their voting changes with the federal government. Because remember, if the Supreme Court hadn't have gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, 
Georgia would have had to approve this entire law with the Biden Justice Department or a federal court. And I guarantee you a large part of it, if not all of it, would have been blocked as discriminatory. Now it goes into effect and you can only challenge it after a lengthy legal process. And by the way, three lawsuits have been filed under it. It just went before a Trump judge because Trump appointed 234 federal judges uh, over the last four years. And so, I mean, challenging (laughs) this kind of stuff through the courts is going to be very, very difficult. And that's why I think legislation is the best way to stop it. And I think that Democrats have a very brief window to do something about it. And if they don't pass these voting measures, they very likely are not going to get another chance because the combination of voter suppression, gerrymandering, off your election trends, that could easily cost them one or two houses in Congress. And so they don't seem to be acting with the same amount of urgency that Republicans are right now. Right. I mean, Republicans lost an election and introduced 361 new voter suppression laws. Democrats won an election and seem to be more committed to defending a relic of Jim Crow than actually stopping the next wave of Jim Crow. And I just find that completely bewildering. Yeah, there's a lot about being a Democrat that I find bewildering. And that's that's probably why I mean, look at what happened in 2020. And we said I think the last time we had you on the show was in the the run up to to that election. We we knew that we had to turn out in numbers that were so large, we would overwhelm whatever cheating, let's call voter suppression cheating, it might be legal in some places, but it's cheating. Um, We had to win by more than they could cheat. And we didn't know how much they could cheat by. What we knew was that in 2016, because of your reporting, we knew that they had thrown, you know, some 280,000 black voters in Wisconsin off of the rolls, uh, more than making up the margin of, of loss there for Hillary Clinton. So we already we knew how important it was. We knew in 2020 we had to show up in overwhelming numbers so that that couldn't happen again. We succeeded. But it was really hard. Like we're, we sh- we we need to start working now to do it again in 2022 or 2024, and I, I'm not sure that I see the urgency from the Biden administration on this particular issue uh, that that I want to. As someone who has devoted their career to following this stuff, are are we are we missing the boat? Are Democrats not not paying enough attention to this? I think they're starting to pay more attention, and I think Republicans are forcing their hand because it's impossible to ignore what's happening in Georgia and what's happening uh, in Texas. But when corporate America is more aggressive in taking action against this stuff than Democrats in Congress, uh, you really have to wonder what the priorities are. And I understand that the president is trying to remain above the fray because he's very, very popular and he doesn't want to alienate some constituencies. Um, But this is an existential fight for democracy right now. This is not just a threat to the Democratic Party. This is a threat to democracy writ large. And Democrats have a very, very narrow window to do something about it. And if they don't pass before the People Act, and if they don't pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, very likely this year, Republicans are going to pass hundreds of new voter suppression measures all across the country. And Democrats are going to be largely powerless to stop it. And they're going to say, why didn't we use the power we had to do something about it when we actually had that power? Because we spent so many years complaining about Mitch McConnell. We spent so many years complaining about Donald Trump and William Barr and all these people. They're not there anymore. So 
The question is, if not now, when? And I think you look at these numbers and you say, this has to be the top priority for the Democratic Party. Obviously, stopping COVID, getting people back to work, those are the key priorities. But right after that, stopping voter suppression needs to be the top thing at the list. Because if you don't have a functioning democracy, if you don't have a democracy where everyone can vote and the will of the people is heard, you can't do anything else. You can't accomplish anything on climate change or guns or reproductive rights or any other issue if we don't have a functioning democracy. And you can't look at 361 new voter suppression laws at the state level and say, this is an example of a democracy that is thriving and functioning and respecting the will (laughs) of the voters. Right. Um, Speaking of very, very bad signs, I would like to talk a little bit about Representative Park Cannon in Georgia, because I think we this story hasn't got nearly I mean, I know that you have I know you've been on it, but you're on this beat. Um, This this story has not gotten enough attention. A a representative was arrested um, for trying to to provide some transparency to the bill signing that was happening. Can you can you tell this story for audience members that might not have 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 heard it before? And, and where where is Representative Cannon now in terms of what she's facing uh, with charges? Yeah. So in one day, the Georgia legislature passed this new voter suppression law, it went from the House to the Senate. And then Brian Kemp signed it at about 6.30 p.m. Uh, and he signed it in the in the closed door hearing, and then he gave a speech, but it was not a public speech, and it was all happened in a very rushed manner. So, um, Park Cannon, who is the youngest member of the Georgia legislature, um, a, a black queer member from Atlanta, she knocked on the governor's door, and she was surrounded by state troopers, and she said, "I want to see him signing the bill," and so she knocked on the door, and then they arrested her. And they dragged her out of the Capitol very violently, and they charged her with two felonies, a sitting state representative. And the state trooper, the Georgia state trooper, said that he was thinking of the insurrection, which is incredible because they literally didn't arrest any of the They did not arrest anybody. Who who tried to violently, who literally violently tried to overthrow an election. Did they knock? I missed an insurrectionist knocking. They didn't knock on the door. I didn't see any videos of them knocking. They didn't knock. They, they took bear spray and instead sprayed it in the face of, of Capitol Police and br- broke the doors down and got their way in. And she politely knocked. Uh, so it was just crazy to compare her to an insurrectionist. And now she's facing two felonies and eight years potentially in jail um, for doing that. I mean, what, what did they even charge her with? Was it like disorderly conduct or something for knocking? Yeah, they charged her with like unlawful entry. I have to go back and look charged her with but something relating to like unlawful entry and disturbing the peace or something like that and and there's a history of this in georgia because after uh, stacy abrams defeat there was another state rep nakima williams who's now a member of congress who now holds john lewis's former seat who also was arrested and they changed the law to say that you couldn't arrest a a sitting state uh, legislator unless they were charged with a felony. So now they have charged her with a felony. She also came back to the Capitol, and she had a sling on. She's not a very big person. And these no, DC she's tiny. state troopers were much bigger than she was. And just the injury... I of, wanted to ask, so the yeah. sling is an injury related to her arrest? I'm sure it is, because, I mean, they were handling her pretty, pretty aggressively. Um, and, I mean, but just the imagery here of, number one, a basically all-white Republican Party passing a voter suppression law in one day that's going to disproportionately hurt people of color. Brian Kemp signing it behind closed doors with six other white men under a picture of a slave plantation. Of a plantation. And then, 
And then the Georgia police arresting a black state legislator who was protesting this. I mean, this is this is the Georgia of the 1950s. I mean, this is the Georgia of the Klan and the White Citizens Council and a political system that shut out black and brown voices. And a lot of people are worried we're going back to those days, not literally, but figuratively and in a lot of tangible ways that we're going back to those days. And there's such a titanic struggle between the new Georgia and the old Georgia. And I would say there's a titanic struggle between the new America and the old America. And that's what I think this is really all about. Oh, yeah. About. You have a Republican this party. This is about the demographic changes. Exactly. This is a Republican party that has become a white, rural, um, overwhelmingly male uh, party that basically exists on white grievance versus a country that is changing demographically that is becoming a lot more younger, a lot more progressive, a lot more diverse. And that's what's motivating all of these restrictions. And that's why it's happening, not just in Georgia, but in Texas and Florida in Arizona in, in all of these states. That's why it's happening, because they see the writing on the wall. And I think the only way they can get an advantage is to stop the impact of demographic change by making it harder for those communities to participate in the political process. So we saw how close Georgia came and how pivotal it was. It literally it won us the White House and uh, and the Senate. Um by a fairly narrow margin both times it was a, it was an upset um and we don't you know I don't, I don't think any democrat takes for granted that georgia's just blue now and we don't have to worry about it anymore so it seems like if you pass a couple of major voter suppression bills in a state like georgia it's very likely that it will change the outcome of an election are, are there other states that democrats might be feeling pretty good about that we should be more wary of because one or two tweaks to throw a few people off the rolls or make it harder for them to show up to the polls and those states are red again well, the, 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 the places that I'm most worried about from that perspective are Arizona, which was also decided by 10,000 mm-hmm. votes and where they're passing a bunch of things to make it more difficult to vote. Um, so that could absolutely swing 10,000 votes. And then Michigan, which has a Democratic governor, but wow. they have introduced 39 bills to make it harder to vote. The Republicans have in the state Senate. And there's this ridiculous quirk in Michigan law where even if the governor vetoes the bill, if they collect enough signatures, which I think is like 15% of the total population, they can override the governor's veto. So they can literally get signatures from 15% of the state, and they can override a governor who was elected with over 50% of the vote. That, to me, is such an insane idea. But... (laughs) That's what I'm, I think a lot of people are complacent that's, thinking. Oh, that's one of those anti past. there are so many little anti-democratic bombs planted all over like our legal system in this country. There are just all these little like things that are going to go off and be like, whoops, actually, we can subvert the popular will of the people because of this archaic thing. This yes. just has to be very frustrating for you to know about all of them. <laughs> it is. And I mean, there's things I didn't even know. About. I didn't even know about this. I thought, oh, Whitmer's going to be able to veto this. And then Dave Weigel. Right. Of course. Was, I wasn't worried about Michigan. Probably, probably more about these anti-democratic quirks than maybe even I do, said, no, they, they can collect 340,000 signatures and they can just override the governor's veto. And I'm thinking, what is the point of even having a veto if you're just going to be able to override it? And so, I mean, With 15%. So even in states that are controlled by Democrats, I'm concerned about this. And then, I mean, I think, basically, I think that there's a very, very good chance that democracy was saved by the presence of Democratic governors and Democratic secretaries of state and attorneys general in Michigan, Wisconsin, yes. and Pennsylvania in 2022. Um, all of those races are up uh, in 2022. Right. So, I mean, if those states go full red, I think we can fully expect them 
to try to overturn the will of the voters in 2024 in a way that they did not do in 2020. And I think that's, to me, the biggest change here. It's not just the fact that they are trying to make it harder to vote because they've been trying to do that for a decade. They're doing more of it now, but they've been trying yeah. to do that for a decade or longer. It's the fact that they are now so aware that they have the power potentially to try to overturn the will of the voters. That to me is the scariest part. That to me is the door that Trump opened that I'm not sure we can close yeah. now. And so I think the end goal of all of this isn't just to make it harder to vote. It's that you make it harder to vote. And then if you don't succeed in doing that, then you just override the will of the voters altogether. And that's a power that they have now in Georgia that they did not have before. And that's the kind of thing that I'm most concerned about going forward. No, that's genuinely terrifying. I mean, at that point, it, it, I mean, it isn't, the, I mean, do you, do you study, do you study collapsed governments in, in, in other places? Like it doesn't, it, this feels like, this feels like this is how we get to fascism. Like it feels like this is how we get to authoritarianism. Like when the answer to, but can they really do that is always, yes, they can. Then, then we're not in a democracy anymore. Like should, should we be looking to, to other places in history to, as warning signs for where we're heading with this? Yes. And I mean, I think it's, it's not, it's not Nazi Germany. It's, Victor Orban's hungry. It's the fact that yeah. if you read how democracies die, a lot of the times democracy is undermined from within through democratic processes, right. that a leader gets elected democratically or somewhat democratically, then they rig the machinery of democracy so that the will of the people is no longer expressed by taking over the legislatures, by taking over the courts. We're already down that path. I mean, the legislatures are already yeah. controlled in many states by by uh, heavily gerrymandered uh, factions that don't really represent the will of their voters. And also, we have a Supreme Court where a, this is just amazing. I mean, a majority of conservative justices have been appointed now by presidents who lost the popular vote and also senators who do yes. not represent the majority of Americans. I mean, so, so that door has already um, been opened. And there's only a few things we have left to remedy them. And I think the ability to pass legislation to block this is the number one thing that, that Democrats could do right now. Uh, and instead, they want to give 41 Republican senators who represent just 21% of the country a veto power over everything through the filibuster. So and that's, that's to, why the filibuster that, keeps to, to coming me, up me, in this, I, I in this conversation. What, what, sorry, what did you say? That's why the filibuster keeps being relevant to this conversation. It's it's not just that the filibuster is itself anti-democratic, just like voter suppression laws are anti-democratic. It's that we can't stop this while we have the filibuster, correct? No, it's impossible. I mean, there's no way that right. the For the People Act or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, is going to get 60 votes. I mean, right now, if you listen to Joe Manchin, it doesn't even have 50 votes. So, I mean, there's some work that needs to be done on Joe Manchin just to get him to support um, H.R. 1. Um, but, but I mean, there's zero chance that anything major is getting done outside of maybe some budget bills uh, with 50 votes. And I mean, it was just interesting to hear you, you asked, they asked Joe Biden, well, what makes you so confident you can get your legislation through? And he said, well, I just got my, my COVID package through and no one thought it was possible. Well, he got it through with 50 votes. <laughs> So I mean, like, right. like right. if you tell me you can get stuff through with 50 votes, I can point to you a lot of things that people don't think can get done that can get done with 50 votes. Um, but if you tell me you right. need 60 votes, I'm telling you right now, nothing is going to pass the U.S. Senate with 60 votes. Right. 
Okay, so we know where our focus needs to be. Wow, am I, like, both depressed and motivated, which is usually what happens when I, I read your stuff. Ari Berman, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, super helpful information, man. Great to talk to you, Josh. Thanks Stay a lot for safe. having me. Thank you all so much for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at Zerlina Maxwell, at Jess underscore MC, and at Signal Boost Show. 